All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Honest Defense. Today, I am honored to be joined by Robert Corn Revere. Bob is considered by me and by many people whose opinions are much more valuable than mine to be the preeminent First Amendment lawyer in America. He is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Davis Wright Tremaine. He's an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. He has argued and been involved with some of the most significant and controversial First Amendment cases of the past 30 years, which we'll be talking all about. Bob, thank you so much for joining me. Eric, thanks for having me. So I like to start this podcast usually by asking people about what they were like growing up, because I like to kind of find a through line between who people were as kids and what they do today. Were you, what were you like as a kid? Were you anti-authoritarian? Did you always have that streak in you? <laughs> I guess so. I was the youngest of four brothers, and so I, I, I grew up uh, having to deal with people who are bigger and stronger than me. Uh, it, it's, it, I guess I've always been this way. Uh, it, it's really hard to trace it back. Although I think there are a couple of pivotal things that happened uh, growing up. One thing I got involved in debate as a high school student and uh, continued that through college and actually uh, graduate school as well as, as a coach. And so always had that sort of love of, of argumentation um, not quarreling. I hate quarreling, but I, I love debate because it's a rational exercise. But uh, that is something that sort of pointed me in the direction of law school, uh, ultimately. And uh, I um, also got involved in journalism at a young age, actually starting in high school and then uh, through uh, uh, college when I worked for a, a local newspaper in Illinois. Um, I come from a small Midwestern town. And uh, so it's a place where you kind of get to try your hand at pretty much anything. So got involved in those sorts of things. And those led me in the direction both of law and in journalism and free speech and things like that. Were, were you planning a career in journalism or was it that was just something you kind of did when you were young? Well, it was, it was something that I got into, uh, like I say, first when I was in high school and uh, started out with a paid column in the local newspaper when I was... Uh, uh, I guess, 15. Um, and that led me to a job as a, a beat reporter doing uh, local government beat and, and things like that. And it, it was something that I worked on when I was in school, but I hadn't really thought about whether or not it was going to become a career. Um, but I was always interested in, in writing and communication. Um, but one of my fellow reporters and, and good friends said, you know, I've heard you're interested in going to law school, and have you heard there's such a thing as media law? And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And so I started thinking about that as I was making plans to go off to graduate school and then eventually law school, and uh, then just continued looking to move into that direction. So, so you were always interested in first. I think what a lot of people don't realize is when you go to law school, you don't major in anything the way you do as an <laughs> undergraduate. You can kind of take anything. So I think a lot of people kind of you know, you take the courses that you're interested in, and then once you graduate, you kind of figure out where you're going to go from there. But did, so did you know right from entering law school that you wanted to do First Amendment law? I did. Uh, and, and part of it was because that seed had been planted when I was uh, an undergraduate student and working at the newspaper. And also, I, I, I was taking uh, courses in the journalism department and came across Joel Gora's book. He's uh, now a, a law professor at Brooklyn Law School. Um, but he um, had worked for the ACLU and had written a book at the time called The Rights of Reporters. And uh, so that was something that uh, I was looking at at the same time these seeds were being planted. 
uh, and uh, sort of moved in that direction. Also a sort of a personal inclination. I hate bullies. <laughs> so that sort of inclined me toward First Amendment law as well. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean? Why Why does your your belief in supporting the First Amendment free speech counteract your or, or align with your hatred for bullies? In that uh, measures that restrict speech are inherently authoritarian. And so this whole notion of just using force or using power to get your way, that's the mindset of the bully. And it, it's also the mindset of uh, government officials who think they have the right uh, or the power to restrict the speech of individuals. And I know early in your career, you worked for the FCC. And I think this is something that throws a lot of people off, too. You hear it a lot, especially in criminal law, that people will go from being a prosecutor to defense or, or vice versa. How do you go from working for the FCC, which is tasked with restricting speech and, and regulating speech, to now being a preeminent free speech advocate? <laughs> uh, well, I, um, uh, I had an opportunity that came along when I was an associate in a major firm in DC uh, to go work as a legal assistant for an FCC commissioner. And those are the kinds of opportunities if you're interested in an area of law, and I was uh, working as a communications lawyer, um, those kinds of opportunities allow you to really understand how the agencies work, um, what kinds of arguments persuade them, what kinds of arguments don't persuade them. Uh, and, and just to learn the nuts and bolts of the field. And I was very fortunate to um, get the opportunity to work as legal advisor to Commissioner James Quello at the FCC and uh, stayed with him for four years. What, <laughs> the best boss I've ever had. Uh, he was um, just a terrific guy who was from the, uh, the greatest generation, World War II uh, veteran that sort of survived the war and came out thinking, what can anybody do to me? I lived. <laughs> so he worked in radio for years and then went to the FCC and, and spent his a, a retirement career of almost quarter of a century um, working as an FCC commissioner. And so he brought to the job uh, the antithesis of the bully, really. I mean, he was the kind of person who really understood the field that he was there to, to regulate, uh, tried at every turn to be just the reasonable guy. And so he was a terrific mentor to have, a terrific person to learn from. Uh, now, that being said, he was aware of it, and I tried to have an appreciation for it as well, that the primary role of government is to respect individual rights and do the, the task you're there to do, but also at the same time show sensitivity for the kinds of rights that are written into the, con uh, the Constitution. And have you found uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but have you have you found that to be a rarity among people you've worked with in, in the federal government that they do respect that idea of their job is to protect rights? Um, I don't see a lot of emphasis on it. I mean, uh, you know, it's like the old adage that if your tool is a hammer, everything in the world looks like a nail. And right. If you're a government official and you're vested with some kind of power, uh, quite often you don't really recognize the limits to that. Um, and so I saw more of that uh, in government than I saw 
the qualities that in my boss, Commissioner Coelho. Uh, and, you know, during the time I was working for him, I was only expecting to be there for a couple of years until his term expired. But at 89 years old, uh, his term was extended. Uh, wow. And uh, he uh, served as uh, chairman uh, for a time, and I was with him during that year. So uh, it was a terrific time. I learned a great deal. But I also learned uh, that uh, federal agencies are blunt instruments. And so when I left the FCC to begin working on uh, developing a First Amendment practice uh, and then worked on cases uh, challenging FCC rules, I, I joke that I worked for the FCC and now I prefer to think of the agency as a defendant. Right. So I want to get into some of the cases that you've worked on in your practice. But first, I have to ask you about your work with the Lenny Bruce pardon. So we had on Ron Collins and David Scover on this podcast. I believe it was episode 18. And they wrote a book about Lenny Bruce and, and all of his legal struggles. And I believe the idea for the pardon came up from the research on this book. They realized that his conviction in New York was still on the books. So can you tell me, how, tell me how you got involved with that? And for people who don't know, Lenny Bruce was considered really the father of modern stand-up comedy in the early 1960s, and he was arrested numerous times for uh, presumably obscenity, just for swearing on stage, but Ron and, and David really say it was because he was attacking the Catholic Church and, and criticizing the Catholic Church on stage. Uh, and so he was arrested in New York, was really his, his major arrest, and you and Ron and David helped to have that uh, record expunged or pardoned uh, I believe in 2012. Can you can you detail how you got involved with that? Uh, sure. The um, first of all, let me just say that uh, Ron Collins and David Scover are two really good friends of mine. They're both wonderful and prolific writers. They've written uh, numerous books as a team. They've also written separately. Um, and and one of their uh, great books is the Trials of Lenny Bruce that came out in 2002, I believe. Um, but it is a wonderful account of how Lenny Bruce did a lot to form our current understandings of First Amendment law, which is unusual because most the way most lawyers come to the field is they read cases and they learn both the history of what's going on in this area and the law in, in that area from the cases they read. But there are certain personalities that have been formative in the law that didn't result in a, a major case or a Supreme Court case. And that was kind of the way with Lenny Bruce. Um, there were no appeals that he was a part of that helped form the law in this area. And at the time, First Amendment law was really changing. Late 50s, early 60s, it was a very formative time for our protections for free speech, including the speech of comedians. And so you're correct, Lenny Bruce was arrested for obscenity, prosecuted in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, and New York seems completely unthinkable today and arrested for things that if they were on hbo today they would be comedy specials that wouldn't even raise an eyebrow right but it, as i said it was a very different time back then so ron and david's book the trials of lenny bruce goes through all of that and talks about why what happened to lenny was so formative in the law but they learned in the course of of researching the book that Lenny Bruce's 1964 conviction for obscenity in New York was still on the books. Now, he had been tried and acquitted in California, both in, in San Francisco and in Los Angeles. He was tried and convicted in Illinois, but that conviction was overturned uh, by the Illinois Appellate Court. 
and he was tried in New York and convicted of uh, uh, of obscenity, but never served his time because he <laughs> escaped to uh, to California and sadly died um, before he could perfect his appeal. Now, the nightclub owner's appeal had been taken and was successful, which is why most people thought that Lenny's conviction had been overturned. But as I say, Ron and David, in the course of researching their book, learned that the appeal was still out there. I mean, the, the uh, conviction was still out there. And so they approached me, actually <laughs> a little underhandedly, but they approached me about uh, doing a, um, a petition for a posthumous pardon. Now, I often refer to uh, Ron as my pro bono pimp because he's always <laughs> bringing me these pro bono cases that he promises me are going to be over in an instant that last for years. Um, you don't even get paid like a pimp. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so uh, we were having lunch one day and I knew he was working on on the book with David and uh, he would, was showing me parts of the manuscript. And over lunch, he said, you know, we discovered that this this pardon, uh, this this um, uh, conviction is still on the books. Uh, do you know if there's such a thing as a posthumous pardon? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I don't know. We can, you know, possibly look into it. I found out that that lunch was sort of a, he was baiting the hook uh, that he and, and David had, had planned to see if they could wrangle me into working on this thing. So we, I ended up finding out that there had been posthumous pardons granted, never in New York, but there'd been one federal uh, posthumous pardon. There'd been, I think, pardons in some seven states or so. And so we looked into what it would take. Uh, I drafted a 40-some page petition uh, for Governor Pataki. Uh, working with Ron and David, we got a number of celebrities and comedians to sign on. Um, and uh, we filed the petition, not in 2012, but in 2003. And um, it uh, sat there for a number of months. And then um, at, at the end of the year, when the governor um, is, has the sort of schedule of reviewing pardon requests, they granted the first posthumous pardon in New York history for Lenny Bruce in, uh, in in 2003. That's that's excellent. And it, it feels like Lenny's legacy, it, it, to me it sounds like just from comedians that I listen to, there's a revival in people understanding and appreciating what Lenny did for comedy and for speech in a way that, I mean, I first came across Lenny because I'm a nerd and I remember reading, I think I, I probably came across, you know, uh, Ron and David's book when I was in high school, um, but no one knew who Lenny Bruce was back then. It seems like now, He's he's becoming better known. Well, Lenny Bruce was before my time. Right. right? I, mean, I, I sort of came of age in the 70s, um, but I had older brothers. And so during the 60s, uh, they were aware of, of people like Lenny Bruce. Um, and uh, so through osmosis, I kind of knew who he was. But the main reason I, I knew of Lenny Bruce was the uh, film in the 70s called Lenny, uh, where Justin Hoffman plays Lenny Bruce. And so I knew a little bit about him from that, but I really learned about him from reading uh, Ron and David's book. But you're right, there is a resurgence of interest and it's due to things like the show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, right. where there's a great portrayal of Lenny Bruce as a recurring character in that series um, and other things too. Now comedians all are well aware of Lenny Bruce and his contributions to Kennedy to, to comedy and why why that you know they largely enjoy the freedom they have because of people like Lenny who went through it before before him George Carlin for example 
owes a lot to Lenny Bruce and knew Lenny. Uh, as a matter of fact, was arrested with Lenny in Chicago at uh, the Gate of Horn, which was uh, 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 where uh, Lenny was arrested. And it was a weird fluke, and it, it's, it's recounted in the book, where um, after they pulled Lenny from the stage in Chicago, they went through the audience and asked people for ID. And uh, one guy just said, I don't believe in ID. So they said, you're coming with us. And they put him in the paddy wagon with Lenny Bruce. And uh, the two of them are sitting there. And uh, Lenny looks at this guy and says, so why are you in here? He goes, I, I, don't, I didn't give him an ID. And Lenny just says, you schmuck. <laughs> and that was George Carlin. Yeah, there are a lot of great stories. Yeah. It's, it's a great, great book. Uh, so I want to get into some of the cases you've worked on, because, again, you've worked on major cases at the, the Supreme Court level. The first one I want to ask you about is United States versus Playboy, which is back in 2000, which I realize for younger listeners is, is really ancient history. And, and the facts of the case sound like ancient history when you think about technology today. But it and correct me if I get any of the facts wrong, but it largely revolved around uh Playboy's TV network and the Federal uh, Communications Communications Decency Act had a, a clause in it saying that uh, programs or channels that were primarily dedicated to sexually oriented program had to be either scrambled or fully blocked. Um, and you and and your colleagues challenged it on, uh, I believe, over breath arguments or or it was it was um, content based arguments. Content-based and yeah. overbreadth and vagueness, but yes, and it was part of the, the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Um, the a little bit of background on that: the Telecommunications Act was one of the later updates to the Communications Act of 1934. There had been various uh, amendments to the Communications Act passed over the years. There had been a Cable uh, Consumer Protection Act in 1992, but then in 1996. Um, there was a movement toward deregulation. And so the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was supposed to recognize technological changes that made it possible to relax some of the regulations. Now, the sort of counterforce that was going on at the same time was sort of an interest in uh, content regulation and censorship. And this was when the Communications Decency Act was added as an amendment to the Telecommunications Act of 1996, sponsored by uh, Senator James Exxon of Nebraska. Now, that was the first time Congress enacted legislation to deal with internet communications. And of course, the government's first impulse when presented with a new medium of communications is to censor it. And so what they tried to do with the uh, Communications Decency Act was to um, uh, adopt broadcast style indecency regulations for internet communications. That became a major case that resulted in uh, the, the landmark decision in 1997, Reno versus ACLU. Uh, also, because it's part of the current conversation about telecommunications policy, Section 230 of the uh, uh, Communications Decency Act was adopted at that time, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but another last minute rider that was sort of stuck into the Communications Decency Act was Section 505, which is the regulation of cable, adult cable networks. And there were really only a couple of them available. So it was targeting uh, networks like Playboy Television. The other one that was the major um, player was Spice Television. Um, but they were the only ones that were really primarily affected, even though other pay networks like HBO and Cinemax also had 
R-rated and, and adult fare. Um, but the only ones that were specifically targeted with this provision was Playboy. So at the time, um, I was called by Playboy to see if there was a way to bring a challenge. And so we challenged the constitutionality of Section 505 and ultimately got a three-judge district court to hold that it was unconstitutional, that it was uh, overly broad and content-based and, and the government had not satisfied the strict scrutiny standard for regulating the content of speech that is protected by the, the First Amendment. Um, that ultimately went to the Supreme Court, argued in 1999, and we got a favorable decision five to four in uh, uh, 2000. And that didn't split along conservative or liberal lines, did it, that decision? No, our, our swing vote was Justice Thomas. Yeah, yeah, there's a very interesting case and decision, the way, the way they ruled on it. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, this, it was a very unique time in history. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you had mentioned the technology, and it, yeah. it's true, it was sort of a quirk of technology at the time. And much of what we see in communications regulation results from two things. One, the fact that technology creates new ways to communicate that present either challenges or threats, depending on how you view them. Uh, and the other is the law tends to treat new technologies differently, and it has since the beginning of First Amendment law uh, in the first part of the, the, the 20th century. Uh, the interesting thing about this is the problem that Congress was trying to solve with this provision was really focused on analog cable systems. Right now, communications are digital, and so uh, you don't have the same kinds of problems. But at the time that you experienced on cable systems something they called signal bleed, and that is for scrambled channels, for channels that you had to pay to get, the scrambling was not always entirely perfect. And so, um, you know, even on a channel you weren't subscribed to, sometimes depending on conditions, you would see bits of an image, you would hear bits of the audio, something that people referred to as Picasso porn. <laughs> I, I, I was coming of age during this time, and I have vivid memories of, of being at my friend's house, and, and if you hit the TV or move the TV a certain way, you could kind of unscramble some of these channels. So I remember that, that very well. Exactly. <laughs> People would sit around for hours going blind to see if they might see something. Uh, but anyway, this caught the attention of Senator Dianne Feinstein. She introduced this provision. And what it meant was that for cable networks like Playboy, if the scrambling wasn't perfect, the only option was either to scramble it household by household, which was hugely expensive, uh, and there was a provision that allowed for another section of the act that allowed for those sorts of voluntary efforts. But the main hammer here was that if the scrambling wasn't perfect for everybody and not just the ones who requested it, then you had to turn, uh, turn off the network for two thirds of the broadcast day. And so it meant Playboy had to go dark between 6 a.m. and uh, 10 p.m. Uh, so, you know, it was an obvious, uh, obvious problem. And as we persuaded the Supreme Court, the solution that Congress imposed was regulatory overkill. Right. Playboy was at the forefront of a lot of legislation and, and legal battles and, and just public conversation during that time, during the 80s, 90s, early 2000s. 
can you talk a little bit about, I don't know if you had a relationship with, with Hugh Hefner specifically, but I think, again, younger people, if they remember Hugh Hefner, it's, it's maybe the reality show that he was on when he was older. Um, but he was really a, a, a huge advocate for the First Amendment. That's why he fought a lot of these cases. Can you, do you, did you have any kind of relationship with him? Hugh Hefner was a, 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 a true hero of the First Amendment um, and uh, sadly died a few years ago. Uh, no longer with us, but his legacy uh, does live on in what he accomplished. And it's it's interesting. Um, Playboy was founded in the mid 1950s, and so it was it was coming of age at the time when all of this change in First Amendment law was going on. Um, it, it was founded at a time when even just images of nudity could be declared to be obscene. You know, at the time that Lenny Bruce was arrested for what, by today's standards, is a mild-mannered comedy routine, maybe a little rude in parts, but, you know, nothing by today's standards. Novels, if they had steamy sex scenes, could be prosecuted for obscenity. Uh, Lenny um, is another example. And, of course, you know, to found a magazine that featured nudity at that time was a risky enterprise it was a risky business and so playboy had to sort of fight for its existence from the beginning uh and as this change in the law was was going on now i had never worked with them before the uh the, uh, the case involving the, the telecommunications act um and i got a call out of the blue from playboy's general counsel uh once that provision was adopted um asking uh, if i'd be able to help and so that was the beginning of my relationship with uh, with playboy in the late uh, 1990s um but i recall at the time when i got the call after i got hired for the gig um uh someone was saying well you know playboy has never lost a first amendment battle <laughs> so no pressure no pressure <laughs> so um and so we uh took the took the matter first the district court and got the the law uh halted through a temporary restraining order uh but then um there was a three-judge panel a three-judge district court not an appellate court but a three-judge district court assigned to take over at that point as prescribed under the law uh and we lost the bid for a preliminary injunction and so the law actually went into effect and really uh, the playboy channel took a real hit during that time but then we eventually got the same panel of judges to reverse themselves and uh, grant a permanent injunction. And that's when it went to the Supreme Court. I want to ask you about another case, uh, be, because there, there's a lot of people who say, I support the First Amendment, I support the free speech, but, and they always have their, their limitations and their restrictions on, on what they're willing to support. There was a case, Snyder versus Phelps, that you didn't argue, but you filed a, an amicus brief with the Supreme Court in, with this case. And this was, I think people will remember, the Westboro Baptist Church was protesting uh, military funerals. Right. and. The, the aspect of the case that, that you, you wrote about was they also were posting messages online uh, that were very derogatory towards uh, the Snyder family who, who you know, had lost a, a, a veteran member of their family. Uh, and they were being prosecuted really for emotional damages that they caused the, the right. Snyder family. It was a civil action for intentional infliction of emotional distress. And there had been a... a ruling against them, um, imposing a huge um, uh, potential damages. Uh, and so um, it, 
uh, um, or actually, am I, I'm, I'm trying to remember the posture that it went up in, um, um, but cert was granted uh, to determine whether or not you could bring an action for intentional infliction of emotional distress against the church. Right, right. And and so that brings up a lot of the issues that we're, we still are talking about today about hate speech and about what should be allowed online. And we had Nadine Strassen, who was the, the former head of the ACLU on the podcast, talking talking all about hate speech and, and why right. it, that needs to be legal. I just want to hear in, in your words why you supported allowing these messages. Because again, people will say, you know, I support free speech, I, I support discussion, but these, you know, these hateful messages, they, they don't have any value to them. No one benefits from, from them being permitted. Right. And that's part of the problem, uh, because it is uh, sort of an eye of the beholder problem in that um, everyone has their own list of the kinds of speech that if they had the authority, they would ban. And that's why I think it's important to think of the First Amendment not so much as a list of the kinds of speech that we think is worthy of protection, uh, but rather a limitation on the government's power to determine what speech is worthwhile. So, for example, do you trust the government to be the arbiter, the arbiter of what is true or what is beautiful uh, or what is useful? Um, all important First Amendment cases aren't so much about the, the value or quality of speech. They are about power. And the whole point of the Bill of Rights is to limit the government's power to make those kinds of determinations. We learned this with the um, uh, the Alien Sedition Acts back in the uh, John Adams administration, when uh, the government basically set itself up as the arbiter of truth. And so um, the, um, uh, the newspapers of the opposition were the primary targets of the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, they would prosecute them, not just for criticizing the government, that was one of the reasons uh, set forth in the act, but also whether or not they were publishing falsehoods. And so uh, you don't have to think about it very long to realize that different administrations are going to use that power differently. Uh, if we flash forward to the, the, uh, um, uh, to the present and ask yourself, how the Trump administration would have used that kind of power versus how the Biden administration would use it. Um, either way, the opposition isn't going to be in a very good position if the government has the power to you know, decide what speech is valuable enough or truthful enough to be protected. And so that uh, created uh, at least the incentive for me to get involved in, in Snyder versus Phelps. Um, and, um, you know, there, the question is whether or not the speech is too hurtful or outrageous uh, to be protected. And we've seen those kinds of cases before when uh, Larry Flint attacked the Reverend Jerry Falwell with a satirical ad in uh, uh, Hustler. In, yes, in, in his magazine Hustler. Um, you know, if you can penalize someone in, in a civil action for simply saying something that is too outrageous, then there really aren't going to be any limits because either side uh, can uh, can feel the sting of that if you allow the government or private litigants using government courts to impose those kinds of uh, those kinds of penalties. 
to play devil's advocate, and this goes back to the Playboy case and another case, or it wasn't a case you were, uh, but a proceeding you were involved with the the wardrobe malfunction issue during the the Super Bowl, where you know CBS and, and Viacom got fined for indecency when when Justin Timberlake ripped Janet Jackson's top off, and I, I have a lot of friends now who are starting to have kids, and they they talk to me about how difficult it is to shield or protect their kids from some of this stuff that that's out there in pop culture that they don't necessarily want to be illegal but they they don't want their four-year-old five-year-old six-year-old to be seeing certain things and they just say it's it's impossible you know with with the internet and, and with media the way it is today to 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 block any of that stuff to keep it out of their house what do you say to to those people who say look i, I i'm all for allowing this stuff but I, I have kids that i want to raise a certain way and it's impossible for me to do that with, with all this stuff being allowed everywhere. And, and there are variations on, on that argument that we've seen throughout time. Um, you know, whether or not back in the day when people would go to the 7-Eleven to look for magazines, uh, the question whether or not they should be kept in blinder racks so you don't see the cover and, and things like that. The question is how you can serve that interest in helping parents make choices uh, without restricting the speech that is lawful for adults. Right. And that was the issue in Playboy. It's the issue in a number of, of uh, other cases. And, you know, it's one that we faced uh, in the first ever case involving uh, filtering systems for uh, public libraries. Uh, my home county here in Loudoun County, Virginia, uh, had imposed a filtering system in the library that was mandatory for everybody, uh, no options. Um, and they said it was to prevent porn, but filters being uh, uh, not um, uh, imbued with court-like powers don't always make uh, uh, great choices. And these were all obviously the technology from 25 years ago uh, was a lot less sophisticated than it is now. But it's one of the reasons why, as a matter of law, you can't have the government using algorithms to make censorship choices uh, any more than um, you know anyone else. I mean, but the thing is, it's sort of a two sides of a different coin. One is to invest the government with that power is censorship to allow private people to use the technology that's available, various kinds of algorithms, various kinds of filters to make selections for themselves is quite another. And that's called parenting. Uh, and in that regard, parents now have more for selectivity than at any other time in our history. Um, and it's true, if you gave children access to everything that was available through all media, then you would have a, a significant parroting problem on your hands. But you also now have the ability to whitelist things. You can select things and limit your kids to seeing those things you have selected. Um, another thing, too, is if parents decide their seven-year-old should have a smartphone, um, you know, that choice itself suggests, you know, maybe the parents should be... Um, rethinking just how much access they wanted to give their kids to the whole wide world. Um, and so if, if you're going to make that kind of choice, you should explore what kinds of technologies will allow you as a parent to um, limit your kids' access to things you don't want them to see. It's funny, you read these stories all the time about tech executives saying, yeah, I don't let my kids on social media. I don't let my kids have a smartphone. You know, the people who know better than anyone, the people who have made fortunes off of this technology realize that this isn't for children. Well, that's right. I mean, just as we are inundated with more kinds of information uh, from all sources all the time in ways that were never 
uh, the case before. Um, it requires people to investigate more fully what options they have available to them to control that technology. I want to ask you about uh, one more case. It was United States versus Stevens, which was about a guy who was posting videos of, of dog fighting online. And so there was a question about should you be able to, to show these violent acts depicted online? You challenged that. Again, I believe it was on overbreath arguments. Could you explain that case and, and why you were uh, why you got involved there? Sure, sure. Well, that's a case where it was argued um, by Patricia Millette, who's now a judge on the D.C. Circuit. I was her co-counsel. Um, and um, the case involved the Crush Act, uh, which was adopted during the Clinton administration, designed to prevent these sorts of fetish videos, these awful uh, videos of showing people like either torturing animals or, or you know, in, in other ways harming them. Um, the law was adopted as a manner, uh, as a means of trying to get at animal cruelty, but what it was prohibiting was not just the acts of animal cruelty, which are prohibited, uh, but any kinds of video, uh, and it was very broadly defined, um, and it tried to treat them essentially as obscenity. Uh, now, no one who actually made or had any connection with crush videos was ever prosecuted <laughs> un under that law, but the government decided to make a test case of Robert Stevens, who was uh, basically an expert on pit bulls. He loved pit bulls. Uh, he uh, had uh, basically an encyclopedic book on how to uh, train them. Um, now, his, he, he did also uh, provide some videos that showed dog fighting, but none he wasn't in favor of, nor did he fight dogs or train people to fight dogs. Um, but he did train pit bulls for hunting and, and things like that. He had videos that depicted um, dog fighting that were filmed overseas or places where dog fighting is legal uh, as to use as illustrations and so on. But here's a guy who was in his 70s arrested in a, a SWAT style raid um, and uh, convicted under this this law uh, and sentenced to, oh my, I can't remember the exact term, I think it was something like three years for this. Uh, his conviction was overturned uh, and the case ultimately went to the Supreme Court. And it was at the Supreme Court stage that uh, I and a number of other uh, lawyers uh, offered to help. And uh, we did so. And again, it was about the government's power to expand these categories of speech that is not protected by the First Amendment. This was very poorly defined, very broadly written. And um, so we got involved for that reason. And I guess the counter argument again is it would be very similar. It'd be people saying, and you could hear this from both sides of the political spectrum, is that you know these this libertarian approach to just you got to let these things happen. Now we're going to be stuck. We have a problem with dogfighting, and we need to find a way to get it to stop it. And the, the first step we can take, the easy step we can take, is to just say, hey, we got to prevent this stuff from being posted online to at least disincentivize people from doing it. And if you take this again libertarian approach where the law can't do anything about it, now we're just are we just stuck with this this scourge? Well, you're assuming that regulating speech is the only way to get at this problem. If you want to ban dogfighting, ban dogfighting and enforce that. But to assume that images of dogfighting are uh, the way to go, uh, then you've got to find a way to cabin that. Um, and by the way, this case illustrates its own problem because this was a law that was written for basically 
bizarre sexual fetishes that then gets applied in a very different way to uh, a person who was never the, the target of the intended legislation. When you write a law that broadly and target speech, that's what happens. You end up going after someone who was not the intended target of the law. So let's turn to a lighter topic now. You have been friends with with Penn Jillette for a very long time. Yeah. Uh, I I love Penn. I, he's been a very huge free speech advocate. He's talked very highly about you on on his shows. How did you first meet Penn and and get involved with him? Well, um, as I think uh, with most people, I started out as a fan. Um, my wife and I first heard about Penn and Teller back probably in the eighties and uh, saw them a couple of times, loved their show. Uh, and uh, years later, when I, when I had left the FCC to return to private practice, I came across uh, an interview with Penn, I think in Reason Magazine, um, basically talking about telecommunications regulation issues. And I had just left the FCC and um, thought, well, I had no idea this guy had an interest in the kinds of things that I'm involved with and that I write about. And so I wrote a blind letter to the magazine, uh, to Penn, um, basically saying, saw the interview, loved it. If you're interested in this stuff, here are a couple of things I've written and sent it along and didn't think anything more about. Uh, and then about hmm, two or three weeks later, I'm returning to my office from lunch one day and my secretary says, Bob, there's, this guy on the phone says his name is Penn. And uh, so he and I got on the phone and, and uh, talked about an hour. And then uh, just we became uh, friends. And then when we would um, be in the same town at a given time, usually at a, a convention of some sort, we'd hang out. And, and over the years, just became good friends. Are, are you surprised that there aren't more celebrities or, or people of Penn's stature physically or or just within the culture uh, who aren't don't speak out about the importance of, of free speech and, and the First Amendment because again a lot of a lot of comedians recognize the value of Lenny Bruce and paving this path that none of them would exist without it but I just I, I'm, I'm surprised that more people in the arts don't seem to at least openly appreciate the the, the structure that's in place that allows them to do what they do. Well, I think you will find people in the arts who have, have an interest in that because they're the ones who have uh, felt the restrictions from time to time. Uh, I think you'll see uh, certain uh, certain groups in Hollywood that organize on that, around that. When we were involved with uh, the Super Bowl case um, and other cases involving the FCC broadcast and decency rules, there were those in organizations uh, from Hollywood that uh, were supportive and spoke out. Uh, you will see that as well with with largely in the comedy field and comedians. And so when we did the Lenny Bruce petition, um, a number of, uh, of folks uh, signed on to that petition, including Robin Williams and, and Penn and Teller and others. So, um, you know, they, they, they do speak out. But I, I will single out Penn and Teller because they are unique in that they do have a very strong philosophical commitment to that. They built much of their act around uh, supporting those ideas they believe in. Uh, and they uh, can get active in, in things, uh, legal issues as well. So I want to ask you a little bit about censorship today. Uh, personally, I feel like my my greatest fear in terms of censorship doesn't come from the United States government these days. It do, it comes from these big tech companies, and I'm always of of mixed feelings because 
platforms like Facebook and Twitter have allowed people to have this freedom of speech that they never would have had before. It's allowed everyone to have this platform to talk. But you're starting to see them now clamping down on some of those freedoms and and selectively choosing who gets to say what. And it's it's concerning to me, but it's also I I, I feel ungrateful to to overly criticize because because again these without these platforms there'd be no speech so is is having this restricted speech better than just not having these platforms at all how do you feel about what should be done you brought up section 230 that's been talked about a lot as a way of of stopping these these companies from from clamping down so much on on their on, on who can say what what's your general feeling on the state of censorship today well let's be careful about the word censorship sure sure Right, because it has a specific meaning in the law uh, that is very different if you're talking about uh, uh, you know free speech concepts in general. Censorship, or let, let, let me put it this way, there's both censorship and there is illegal censorship or unconstitutional censorship. Censorship when you tell your kids to be quiet in the house, <laughs> you know that's that's parenting again. It's not right. uh, it's not censorship, even though it has the same effect of silencing someone. Um, you know, when um, the NBA uh, censured uh, Donald Sterling for making racist comments, you know, the, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. It doesn't say the NBA shall make no rules. And so right. that kind of private action is, is very different. The online platforms are in a uh, sort of, a, well, a, a very different, a difficult situation. They're damned if they do and damned if they don't. If they don't enforce any content rules that everyone complains, oh, you've got to stop this kind of, and insert your favorite bugaboo um, um, here, right. you've got to stop this kind of speech or that kind of speech. Um, you know, we can't let the white supremacists communicate with each other, or we can't let Black Lives Matter communicate with each other because look what, the, what they will do. You know, they are inundated with all kinds of demands to silence some kind of speech that people find objectionable. And so um, they're in a precarious position that way. At the same time, if they make any selections about who they're not going to platform, for example, then they're described as being the great censors. So government must move in and exert some kind of control. you know, although they never, no one ever fills in the blank after, okay, what kind of speech is the government going to insist that the platforms uh, uh, allow or censor? So it's a very difficult position, but we need to keep in mind that however big they may have become, they are private entities. They get to set the terms for what kind of community they want to have uh, online. Um, I've seen a recent suggestion that we should have a fairness doctrine like regulation for um, online platforms. Now, the Fairness Doctrine was a broadcast regulation that existed from 1949 to 1987 that required broadcast stations licensed by the federal government to cover both sides of controversial issues of public importance. It never worked. Uh, All it ever really effectively did was give government a tool that it could use to impose restrictions and and, and exert leverage on broadcasters. It was misused by the Nixon administration. It was misused by JFK. Uh, So, um, you know, eventually it uh, was repealed. Um, You know, the arguments for bringing it back don't get any stronger just because the platforms are larger online. 
let's see, you may yeah, mention Section 230. Section 230 is probably the most important thing Congress did, even if it was almost inadvertent to promote free speech online of uh, any legislation I can imagine. And what it says is that, well, two things. One is that online platforms are not going to be treated as the speaker for third party speech that they allow online. And the other thing is it says that uh, platforms do have the ability to exert their own editorial standards for speech that they don't want to have online. So those two provisions, Section 230C1 and C2, um, have existed to promote the ability of platforms to make those kinds of decisions. Now, people are upset with Section 230, either because they see speech online they don't, don't like to see there, or they um, uh, they don't like the platforms have been making decisions uh, that to do the very thing that Section 230 um, empowered them to do. Um, so, like I say, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Uh, and I think it would be a disaster if uh, Congress messed around with or repealed Section 230. What about the argument, uh, you know, that maybe these platforms are they're they're burdened by their own success and that they've become the the public square, especially in this past year when the the literal public square was was shut down. We weren't allowed to to gather, and and so these platforms became the the one place that people could go to talk about these issues, and that maybe they should be treated like a a public utility or like a common carrier like the phone company where you know the phone company can't restrict who gets to speak over their lines they just they just provide the tools to speak and whatever happens happens what's the danger in just treating these online platforms the same way oh how would that work exactly do you think i mean (laughs) um you know well, the, the the question, I mean, the, people would say, you know, some, you know, Verizon and and AT and T work relatively relatively well in the sense that if I want to make a call to someone, I can make a call, no one stops me, I can I can say what I want, and as far as that goes, it actually works pretty well. Well, in, if you're talking about uh, purely uh, common carriage, in the sense that there is, um, uh, if you're talking about access to a a communications network. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about access to the network. We're talking about access to somebody else's platform. And what you're saying is that they can't exert any kind of rules over that whatsoever. What you see is sort of the swinging back and forth between people who say they want some kind of restrictions on them. We, we want restrictions on, you know, choose your favorite hated group um, or, or no restrictions at all. And by the way, when you're talking about platforms having their own rules, that's not saying that you don't have access to a network. And that's why alternatives like Parler and, and others uh, spring up when they think that there are sufficient groups that feel they've been disenfranchised, they can go somewhere else. Well, and it's funny that you bring up Parler because I think that's another big concern is that yeah, people said, well, if, if you don't like what Twitter's doing, you don't like what Facebook's doing, start your own platform. Parler was started and it was very quickly removed by you know, the bigger platforms, by, 18, by, by Apple and, and Amazon and Google. But they are now back. Right. A- a- after, after a big struggle. Well, and that's, you know, that's life. <laughs> right, right. So, so would you say you're generally happy with the the status quo of of the legal landscape as far as this goes? Well, I'm 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 optimistic about how First Amendment law has been progressing, uh, but that's not to say that there aren't significant challenges. I mean, 
when you talk about how communications have changed, I mean, think about how um, the technologies evolved from like the 80s and 90s when cable was required to have public access channels because the idea was individuals don't have the ability to communicate, so we need to set up these public networks so that people can do that. Never really worked all that well, but that was the theory behind it. The internet comes along and now everybody has access to a global communication uh, communications network. Uh, you know, the problems we have now come uh, really from what someone would, would call too much free speech, right? The, the struggles that people are having are, are over the fact that you have all of these abilities to communicate that never existed before the 21st century. Uh, it was really, this is it's, it's that modern a phenomenon. The problem that we have is more of a limited attention span and uh, more of a limited ability to um, process the volume of information we have. We now have the ability to have the sum total of human knowledge, essentially, in our palm with our smartphones. You have access to fact checking. You have access to encyclopedias. You have all of this. And the question is whether or not it makes a difference. Are people actually using that information? Uh, are people deliberating more than they did before? Or, or has our attention span been fragmented by the existence of these technologies? I think the challenge in free speech terms is how to reconcile these notions of deliberative democracy, deliberative decision-making, um, with the inability to have some kind of impulse control. Right. <laughs> um, right. right, so that people actually process the information that's available to them before they make decisions rather than to have these uh, sort of warring mobs uh, of people operating purely on impulse. That's what, when you get like Twitter mobs and you right. get cancel culture and you get these various things where all you really are trying to do is to satisfy an instantaneous need rather than to deliberate. And that's, that's what I think the struggle is. It's hard to take a scalpel to, to keep the good things that come from technology and, and eliminate the, the bad things. And having that blunt force of legislation doesn't always, very rarely does the trick. There are always unintended consequences, right? Um, and you know, if you empower uh, some sort of government entity, either through private litigation or through a regulatory mechanism, you know, as I say, some have been mentioned. Um, you know, they would be the authoritarian's dream. They would they would be uh, the ability to really exert very broad control. And, and I always, like I say, I always try to remember to be grateful for these technologies because uh, a few years ago, you've been a hero of mine for a very long time. Up until a few years ago, I never would have had the opportunity to talk to you like this. So I, I, I do have to remember, hey, there's a lot of good stuff to this technology. Um, I want to ask you, was there any one particular case that you were especially proud of that you worked on? I think the Playboy case. Um, you know, and, and one of the reasons uh, for that is uh, it was, um, it, it, yeah, probably my first major case that, and certainly uh, uh, to go all the way to the Supreme Court was uh, was very exciting. Uh, little known fact, uh, John Roberts, when he was a partner of mine, um, when we were preparing the case, uh, played the role of Chief Justice in the moot courts that we had for the Playboy case, so. Uh, so he owes you one. <laughs> or I owe him a lot. <laughs> um, but it was uh, it was really invigorating and a, and a great way to uh, really jumpstart a First Amendment career. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's not a bad place to start. Government when that when that case came along. Right. So I know you have a book coming up. Can you tell me a little bit about that book? Sure. It's due out at the end of the year from Cambridge University Press. Uh, it's called The Mind of the Censor and the Eye of the Beholder. Uh, we've got a foreword written by Floyd Abrams. Um, and it basically talks about this notion of um, how you recognize censors when you see them. <laughs> and it, it basically is, it's not a, a law book per se, so much as a book of stories about censorship, starting with sort of the premier uh, self-created censor in America, Anthony Comstock, and then goes through various ways in which the same mindset appears in censorship of comic books, uh, the drive to uh, regulate rock music. Do you remember the record labeling controversy from the 80s, Tipper Gore, the Parents Music Resource Center, um, the flap over broadcast indecency, uh, Newton Minow and his branding uh, broadcaster television, a vast wasteland, uh, goes through those various categories and looks at what characteristics um, censors have in common. It kind of gets back to the, uh, the start of our conversation when you asked me what motivated me to get involved in First Amendment law. It really is about how censors are bullies and um, they share a lot of characteristics in common, including the belief that their preferences can be made a matter of law to restrict the speech that they dislike. Right, right. Oh, well, I am excited for that book to come out. I will be first in line to pre-order it. Uh, Robert Cornrevere, thank you so much for your time. Again, it, it's just been an honor to, to have the opportunity to speak with oh. you. I, I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. It's, it's been a lot of fun. All right.